It's midday on the first Monday in July, which means it's time for Book Choice on Fine Music Radio, coming to you from the Artscape Theatre in Cape Town. I'm Cindy Moritz. And I'm Matabataba. How are you, Cindy? I'm good, thanks, Matabataba. We're both delighted to bring you this month's choice of good books from our team of readers. Beverly Ruiz Muller delves into the complex world of artificial intelligence in Ian McEwan's Machines Like Me calling it elegant as well as disturbing. Andrew Brown feels like Alice in Wonderland reading William Boyd's Love is Blind, which is now out in paperback. Vanessa Levenstein calls Fiona Snicker's Lacuna an articulate response to J.M. Coetzee's novel Disgrace, finally giving Lucy Lurie a voice. And Philip Todras speaks to Samantha Smirin, author of Life Interrupted, a bipolar memoir. He describes it as a heartbreakingly honest biography of a person confronting bipolar disorder. From the human condition to the call of the wild, John Hanks flew through African raptors by William Clark and Rob Davies and calls it a must-have for dedicated ornithologists. Back down to earth, Beryl Eichenberger explores a dream come true or a nightmare waiting to happen in Michelle Sachs's dark fiction, You Were Made for This. Penny Lorimer has discovered a new historical series with Philip Kerr's Metropolis, featuring an interesting and attractive protagonist. And I'll tell you about Sarah Blake's The Guest Book, a powerful exploration of whether history is the memory we carry in our bodies and how one privileged American family grappled with their own things better left unsaid. Please stay with us for our easy-peasy competition to claim the book that won this year's award for women's fiction. Rest assured, it appeals to all, so do keep listening. Beverly Roosmuller, you plunged into the world of artificial intelligence in Ian McEwan's Machines Like Me. This is an elegant and disturbing novel by the master writer Ian McEwan, who plunges us into a rather different world of artificial intelligence to the impersonal information givers of our daily lives, such as our cell phones, GPS and Google. Machines Like Me is a deliberate hark back to a more subversive form of artificial intelligence, the one that enthralled and scared us all so much in Stanley Kubrick's groundbreaking movie of the 1960s, 2001, A Space Odyssey, with its mixture of high science and creepy anthropology. The novel is based on a what-if set of premises. What if Margaret Thatcher had not won the 1982 Falklands War? And what if the genius Alan Turing, code-breaker extraordinaire of World War II, had not been hounded to death for his homosexuality, but had gone on to unpick some of the greatest codes of our time, from the DNA sequence to a form of robot almost indistinguishable from ourselves? The narrator, Charlie, is an entitled but unimpressive slob in love with a human sciences doctoral student, Miranda, who lives in the flat upstairs. For no easily comprehensible reason, to the reader that is, he uses an inheritance from his mother to buy at huge expense and as a form of intellectual curiosity, a silky-skinned robot named Adam. I'll avoid the obvious comment here. McEwen writes, Electronics and anthropology, distant cousins whom late modernity has drawn together and bound in marriage. The child of that coupling was Adam. Well, I suppose the same could be said of a loser who buys a red Maserati, an overcompensating mechanism. But when the talented McEwen Booker Prize winner is at work, nothing is quite what it seems. Adam arrives unbooted. Literally, he sits naked, plugged into the mains for two days, waiting to be programmed. Charlie has an amazingly bad idea. 
he will get Miranda upstairs to program Adam too, half and half, so that the beautiful and brilliant robot will be, like humans, equally part of his progenitors. No good can come of this. There are at this time only 13 adult Adams in the world and 12 Eves, two of the latter bought by a Middle Eastern oligarch, and they essentially commit suicide in despair at their truncated lives, for it turns out that these super robots are programmed to assume they have feelings, including that they are capable of love. Naturally, Adam falls for Miranda, and just as naturally, Miranda can't wait to see what sex with Adam is like. There is a sufficient but thankfully not over-detailed explanation of how that works. But if such robots believe that they can feel as humans do, then it must also be true that their exceptional information skills must reveal to them that no full life can be offered to them. They must plug into an energy source each day. If starved of it, they will fail. And in essence, are they not really, well, little more than modern-day slaves? And if they may love, then what about depression? Adam quickly figures out how to disable his off switch and breaks Charlie's hand when he tries to use it. He also reveals the darker side of Miranda's history. Is having a clever robot in your home any better than having a total stranger suck up much of your domestic space and energy? Machines Like Us is a marvelous read, if only for McEwan's superb, clear prose. And it's interesting premise, though he unfortunately gives us a cheering lecture at the end, which is both annoying and unnecessary. Let his readers make up their own minds, for that is what sets us apart from machines. We actually have a mind, even if it's not always wisely used. I thought about this book long after I had finished reading it. That's always a good sign. As I mentioned, we'll be giving away the book that won the 2019 Prize for Women's Fiction. This accolade goes to none other than Tayari Jones, author of An American Marriage. In it, she portrays a young African-American man's wrongful incarceration and the devastating impact this has on his marriage. Jones was crowned the winner of this coveted prize at an awards ceremony last month in central London. Professor Kate Williams, Chair of Judges, called the book an exquisitely intimate portrait of a marriage shattered by racial injustice. It is a story of love, loss and loyalty, the resilience of the human spirit painted on a big political canvas that shines a light on today's America. To win a copy of An American Marriage, please call us on 021-401-1013 and answer the question, what prize did Tayari Jones win last month for her popular novel? Now let's join Andrew Brown on his journey down the rabbit hole as he tells us more about William Boyd's Love is Blind, out in paperback. William Boyd's new book, Love is Blind, in this case, Love is Blind and Deeply Miserable. Reading William Boyd's new book, now out in paperback, is rather like taking a stroll along a gentle and familiar path in your favorite part of the meadows, only to turn a corner and find yourself confronted by a diabolical crime scene in which lovers have contrived to take each other's lives in a final act of commitment and sadness. There have been comparisons made to the topsy-turvy logic of Alice in Wonderland, and indeed one feels a little like Alice out for her usual walk when the white rabbit crosses her path and nothing is ever the same again. The book starts off with the signature beauty of Boyd's writing. They are echoes of Any Human Heart and his other character-strong novels. We learn much about the central character, Brodie Moncur, a piano tuner, and his developing crush on the Russian opera singer Lika Blum. The writing is beguiling, drawing you into the comfortable enjoyment of character, setting, and language that is typical of William Boyd. But it's almost as if it develops a speed wobble, unable to maintain a simple course, and matters become increasingly interesting. Moncur's association with the troubled pianist John Kilburn, the involvement of the malevolent Malachi, the hellfire sermons of Moncur's father, 
these all start to blend together into an increasingly unstable recipe. Ultimately, as poor Brody realizes, to be truly in love is to be trapped in a madding cycle of strange unhappiness. Those who would love would do well first to read this tale. It's particularly interesting, though, to see how different reviewers have reacted to the novel. It has been labeled rapturous, which is a particularly generous adjective, audacious, and as worthy of adulation as any of Boyd's best works. Yet the New York Times declared that it was rather long-winded and stagey. One reviewer explained the quirky references to other works of literature, cunningly disguised in the text, but assured readers that they ought not to be concerned by the cerebral nature of the book. Yet another reviewer, though, suggests he found it rather superficial. So these vastly differing opinions indicate, I think, the demands and expectations that we place on great writers like Boyd. Some will find their needs fulfilled, and others will not, a bit like love, perhaps. For me, this isn't any human heart. It isn't Brazzaville Beach. It's not a book that perhaps will linger in your memory forever, but it is the masterful William Boyd, a naughty smile on his face, entertaining his readers with every single clever page. Little Brown Jug, played by the Glen Miller Orchestra of South Africa and directed by Johnny Cooper. Over to you, Cindy. Vanessa Levenstein brings us a warning about the content of this review and then goes on to describe Fiona Snicker's lacuna as an articulate response to J.M. Kutsia's disgrace. The content of this review focuses on the rape of a young woman. Understandably, this may be triggering and distressful for some listeners. So if you don't want to listen, this review will be approximately three minutes. 
In order to discuss Lacuna by Fiona Snikers, we need to cast our minds back to James Coutier's 1999 novel, Disgrace. As Goribos Taylor exclaimed, Disgrace? Who could forget that depressing dog on the cover? Indeed, the depressing dog and the depressing view of post-apartheid South Africa. Disgrace's narrative focuses on a young woman, Lucy Lurie. She is gang-raped and refuses to seek any form of retribution for the rape. She also chooses to keep the pregnancy and raise the child. As a white South African, she has accepted this fate, and the novel ends bleakly. Disgrace won the Booker Prize, and four years after this award, Kutsia was awarded the Nobel Prize for Literature. Awards aside, Disgrace was quite simply literature to slash one's wrists with. And now, twenty years later, that rusty blade has resurfaced. Lacuna's cover design is very clever, as it deconstructs the cover of James Kutsia's book. There's a single outline of that depressing, disgraced dog. However, the dog's body has been cut out of a page of a book, and if you look carefully, the words forming the dog's shape are from Kutsia's disgrace. It will be, after all, a child of this earth. They will not be able to deny it. Lacuna means a gap, and Snikers is determined to fill the gap in Lucy's narrative, a brave undertaking of a young writer to challenge the great literary canon. As Lucy says, Kutsia is the darling of the literary world. No one will be interested in a piece that challenges him. Snikers throws all the academic terminology at John Kutsia. Take note, not J.M., as she partly fictionalizes the author. Her points are valid. All that stuff about Lucy not wanting to prosecute the rapist because she recognizes the validity of their anger. She takes upon her body the sins of apartheid, like some dungaree-wearing lamb of God. What utter garbage! It's symbolic, it's a metaphor, it's an insult. The author's description of post-traumatic stress syndrome is achingly real. But Lacuna is not an academic essay, but a literary work. And somewhere along the line, Snikers gets too tricksy with her narrative. She writes a page or two and then reveals it's all in Lucy's imagination. So towards the end of the book, I felt slightly disinterested, as if I wasn't quite sure what the writer was setting us up for or playing with. So I felt slightly less inclined to stay with the character. However... Snikers is brave and takes the book into very dark waters, perhaps on some level equally dark as Kutsia. Lacuna is an interesting read, an intertextual exploration of agency, fiction versus truth, feminism, patriarchy, colonialism and apartheid. And while Lacuna is unlikely to receive the same literary plaudits as disgrace, at least Lucy Lurie has been given a voice and has the last word. Philip Tadras you spoke to Samantha Smirin, who's written in a surprisingly poetic way about living with bipolar disorder. You've described as a heartbreakingly honest biography, Life Interrupted, a bipolar memoir. Samantha Smirin wrote Life Interrupted, a bipolar memoir. And I must say straight up front, what a wonderful read. I found it beautifully written. But let me first quote from the book, because I'd like to hear Samantha's response. I am Samantha Ann Smirin. I am living with an illness called bipolar. It took me most of my life to understand the separation between me and the beast. My dance of denial with my illness made me dig deep, determined to know and develop who I am today. I am grateful to bipolar for that. Samantha, I must say, that's a very heroic and brave statement, and how much heroism did it take to get to the stage, and how cathartic was the experience in actually writing your thoughts and your experiences down? Well, for me, the hero's journey is all about overcoming the obstacles and managing a way through the thresholds. And one of the greatest things I learned was to make the distinction between me as a human being in my totality as the multitudinous individual I am and the fact that I had bipolar. So as not to over-identify with the illness. So, yes, it, it has been a heroic journey as such. And it has certainly got me to the place I am today, which I sit with deep introspection and knowledge of who I am because of what I have overcome. Sure, but is that knowledge entirely the only thing that helps? Because, you know, you speak about medication. Medication has a role in managing the physiology of my brain. 
but developing the nature of my mind is the meaning of my life, and that is completely in my hands. Is that entirely correct? Well, I think there's two things. I think there is the biological basis of the illness, which certainly can be treated and is treated through medication. And for me, my issue was very much around struggling with the idea that I had to take medication to manage my life, to manage the way I was in the world. But I make a distinction between the physiology of the brain and the mind, because the mind is something that cannot be measured. It certainly can't be x-rayed. It's not a physical form. It's a formless continuum, if you will. And for me, my understanding of that mind is such that the quality of my mind can be changed. So I make that distinction between the two. But that quality of your mind to have the strength to be able to do it, to get in touch with it. Is that something that you can tell people about or help them with? Because I see you've moved into coaching. Yes, I do. I've developed various tools which I've extracted and extruded from the book. These are tools such as based on illness identification. I do an artwork called Who I Am, which looks at all the aspects of, of the client. I've got various tools like a depression toolkit, which are, you know, small things that I developed to help myself cope with depressive episodes. And of course, as I mentioned in the book, my practice of meditation, which really is a practice of stabilizing the mind so as to set a default of a happy and peaceful mind for the day. So yes, there are many, many tools that I use, practical tools that I share which have been extruded from the book. And may I just compliment you? As I say, it's not only that you deal with the illness and you say it feels as though everyone is interested in my oddity and revels in my illness. In reality, the world is not interested in my stupid obsessive story. Yet in my paranoia and self-loathing, it feels like the whole world is watching my perpetual demise. I'd like to say to you that I think what is thrilling, it's no longer demise. It's the way that you've tackled it and the way you've written about it with honesty and with enormous creativity, which tells that your life might have been interrupted, but I think you can look forward to a whole new future, even with bipolar, which you've tackled and understood and interpreted in a way only that you, Samantha Smirin, can do. So that's Samantha Smirin, Life Interrupted, a bipolar memoir, which is published by Jakana. Please don't forget to call in to win a copy of Tayari Jones, An American Marriage, for which she won the 2019 Prize for Women's Fiction. Call us on 021-401-1013 and tell us what prize did Tayari Jones win last month for her popular novel.
somewhere out there, played by the Cape Town pianist Ken Higgins. If you're a raptor enthusiast or would like to know more about the subject, John Hanks weighs in on Bill Clark and Rob Davies' superb field guide, aptly called African Raptors. There's also a surprise guest. William Clark and Rob Davis have produced what I must call an absolutely superb field guide to all of Africa's 106 diurnal raptors. Entitled African Raptors, it's a publication which I'm sure will be on the must-have list, not only for the dedicated ornithologist, but also for so many other wildlife enthusiasts who spend time wanting to get positive identifications of the species they encounter. William, or Bill Clark, as he is perhaps better known, is recognised and respected as one of the world's leading experts on raptor identification. And in teaming up with Rob Davis, they've produced exceptionally detailed descriptions of each species. The book is a real labour of love, which took 20 years in the making. Where it's called so highly is the combination of 52 colour plates at the start, all painted by Rob Davis, with hints of habitat and with juveniles and adults often perched and in flight. These are excellent, and the book is worth buying for the plates alone. They're followed by 200 pages of authoritative text, distribution maps, and over 300 photographs of the 106 raptors, the results of hundreds of hours spent in the field and many more hours of meticulous research of the literature on each species combined with inspection of museum specimens for plumage details. A most useful section on similar species, coupled with up-to-date and easy-to-read range maps, will help to focus field identification. With so much detail of the plumage of each raptor, a surprising omission was a descriptive account of the calls, which can help to identify species, although many of the raptors are usually silent except when breeding, which the authors have stated in the sections on behaviour. For example, those of us living in and around Cape Town will recognise the characteristic and distinctive clear and repeated bew of the forest buzzard, which immediately separated from similar-looking but usually silent step buzzard. Let's listen to it now. But this is a very minor criticism of what I'm sure will be widely recognised and used as a definitive reference book and an invaluable field guide for use throughout the African continent for many years to come. Congratulations to Rob and Bill for an excellent production. The title again is African Raptors. It's published by Helm Identification Series in London and it's available from Amazon for £33.29 and Loot at 846 Rand. From up there to the gritty depths of dark fiction, Beryl Eichenberger explores a nightmare waiting to happen in Michelle Sachs's You Were Made For This. You Were Made For This, also published as The Dark Pass, shows Michelle Sachs as a very, very accomplished author. Imagine leaving the hustle and bustle of a teeming New York to settle in the bucolic countryside some 45 minutes from Stockholm, Sweden. A dream come true <laughs> or a nightmare waiting to begin. Dark fiction seems to emanate from the Scandinavian countries. And while Sachs is South African born and now living in Sweden, she has embraced this genre to bring a novel that is compelling, chilling, disturbing and tragic. Combining family histories, friendship, control and postpartum depression, this tale is one that will stay with you. For Mary and her husband Sam, the move is a new start. A family who has everything. The minimalist, beautifully decorated and restored farmhouse in the woods. A doting wife who bakes, cleans, groans her own vegetables and herbs. And a devoted husband who is pursuing his new career filmmaking. Plus baby Connor makes three. The picture of domestic bliss where the home runs smoothly, the husband comes home to a loving wife and a cooked meal every night, and the baby is contented and loved. Well, as they say, if it looks too good to be true, it probably is. Sack's skill is in scratching beneath the perfect surfaces and uncovering layer by layer the imperfections of the characters' lives and their ways of resolving their challenges. As the layers peel back, they reveal chilling and very disturbing stuff. 
The beauty of the book is that you are drawn in from page one. And while you may not like the characters, their lives resonate and their transgressions are not uncommon. From the moment you start reading, you sense the discomfort that Mary has with the baby, referred to as the baby throughout her chapters. Bonding here is an issue, but never to be spoken about, and presenting the loving mother is the role. When Mary's best friend Frank, short for Francis, comes to stay, the secrets behind the closed doors start revealing themselves. Frank's closeness to the family becomes even closer. She bonds with Connor. Sam enjoys her company more than is seemly, and even the neighbors are caught up in Frank's friendliness and good nature. Here is Mary, coming from a very privileged but emotionless, dysfunctional family, deeply scarred by parental indiscretions, arrogance, and neglect, very much dependent on her friendship with Frank when it suits. Mary is the past master of reinvention, becoming the woman the current partner needs, and so she has adapted to life with Sam and the perfection he requires, to the extent of having a baby. Husband Sam is an academic, whose fall from grace is apparent as the story unfolds. As a serial philanderer, he is more concerned with control of his and Mary's life, and his ability to meet his own desires when and if he wants. A new life in Sweden, a new career, a family set up with an adored baby, and a new mistress, and his life is complete. Frank is more like a sister, having grown up with Mary when the girls spent more time together at Frank's home with her nurturing mother. So unlike Mary's conceited, arrogant, and selfish mother. Conversely, Frank is more attuned to Mary's mother and achieves a successful career, unlike Mary's fluttering from job to job. Frank is a woman who picks up and drops men at her whim, never quite achieving a lasting relationship. Below the surface, the girl's friendship is toxic and driven by jealousy and revenge. Provocative and revealing the darker side of marriage, friendship, and motherhood, unfold under Sack's distinctive writing. And here is a thriller that you won't put down. A very ordinary girl or name, but who's to blame for a love that wouldn't bloom? For the hearts that never played in tune, like a lovely melody that. Everyone can sing. Take away the words that rhyme. It doesn't mean a thing. And Aubrey was her name. We tripped the light and danced together to the moon. But where was June? No, it never came around. If it did, it never made a sound. Maybe I was absent, always listening too fast, catching all the words, but then the meaning going past. God, I miss the girl, and I'd go a thousand times around the world just to be closer to her than to me. Aubrey was her name. 
Local crooner, Harry Curtis. Let's hear what and who Penny Lorimer discovered in Metropolis, the last of Philip Kerr's historical series, published posthumously. This month I was finally introduced to the character of Bernie Gunther. Resident of Berlin, Bernie Gunther is a character created by Scottish author Philip Kerr for a series consisting of 14 historical thrillers. Bernie was a sergeant during the First World War, where he won a second-class Iron Cross, like Hitler, but, as he says, most of the first-class medals were awarded to men in cemeteries. After the war, Bernie joined the Berlin police and started off working in Vice. In this latest book, Metropolis, he is seconded from Vice to investigate the killings of four prostitutes, murdered very gruesomely in as many weeks. As he's familiarizing himself with the case, a fifth murder occurs. This time, the victim's father is a powerful member of Berlin's criminal underworld, and he's prepared to go to extreme lengths, and does, to find his daughter's killer. And then war veterans begging on the streets also start getting murdered. It seems that some person or persons unknown are determined to clean up Berlin of anyone less than perfect. This is a chilling foreshadowing of the rising tide of Nazism in the post-war atmosphere of desperation and seediness rife on the streets of a somewhat chaotic city. Interwoven in these two cases is another earlier cold case of some unidentified female body parts found wrapped in brown paper and burned, which Bernie manages to investigate too. I was a bit worried that I wouldn't enjoy Metropolis as I haven't read any of the previous Bernie Gunter books, but it's the mark of a good series when a reader can pick up a story at any stage and not feel lost or left out. Also, having set the first Bernie Gunter book in 1936, when Bernie's already left the police and become a private investigator, Kerr sets this book years earlier, in 1928, when Bernie is still a policeman, so it actually serves as a good introduction to him. And Bernie is a wonderfully attractive and believable character. He is, of course, damaged, as most men who survived the Great War were, and his damage is emotional. He's a functioning alcoholic and extremely cynical and world-weary, but he's also tough-talking, humorous, philosophizing, and, importantly, intrinsically honorable. His wife died in the 1918 Spanish flu pandemic, and since then he apparently hasn't had much luck with long-term relationships, although it's obvious in this book that he has a soft spot for women and readily entangles himself with them. As Ian Rankin writes in his introduction, this book is richly detailed, thoroughly researched, and brilliantly plotted. Apparently, Philip Kerr's commitment to research for his books sometimes led him into dangerous situations, such as when he was travelling with the St. Petersburg police for a thriller set among Russian mafia. He discovered that the flak jacket he'd been given to wear was full of holes from where the previous wearer had been shot. All sorts of historical references are made throughout Metropolis. Things like Bertolt Brecht's The Thrapani Opera, rehearsing for its first performance with Lottie Lenya and composer Kurt Weill. I also learned that the Berlin city morgue was still open to the public at this time, like a kind of grisly, popular tourist attraction. According to Kerr's notes at the end of the book, the main body-viewing hall was 25 metres long and bodies were displayed for three weeks, hoping for identification, before being buried by the city. So Metropolis, like all really good thrillers, in my opinion, has a strong sense of time and place. Very sadly, Metropolis is the last Bernie Gunter thriller, as Philip Kerr died of cancer in 2018, aged only 62. 
Luckily for me, though, I can still go back to the beginning and read the previous 13 Bernie Gunter thrillers, and I can't wait. The book is Metropolis by Philip Kerr, published by Quirkus this year. Last chance to call in to win a copy of Tayari Jones, An American Marriage, for which she won the 2019 Prize for Women's Fiction. Call us on 021-401-1013 and tell us, what prize did Tayari Jones win last month for her popular novel? As always, thank you to Rick for compiling this lovely music. You've just been listening to all the things you are played by uh, pianist Yappi Herman. I've just finished reading The Guest Book by Sarah Blake, and what started with a dramatic scene eased into a contemplative immersion into the notion of how we remember and what we choose to forget. To quote James Baldwin, People are trapped in history, and history is trapped in them. This is what is pinned above Sarah Blake's desk. The guest book was born out of the author's compulsion to imagine her way into the past. As a writer of historical fiction, this is what Sarah Blake does, but for this story to ultimately be told, she was to find herself on the streets of Berlin, having moved there with her husband and two sons for a sabbatical year. It was there that she encountered distolpersteine, or stumbling stones, brass stones set into the paving where Jewish people once lived or died, a witness, a testament to their lives that were not otherwise memorialized.
It got her wondering if that could be similarly done in her home country, America, and what conversation it would elicit about the stories people tell themselves about who they are, who their families are, and the roles that they've played over time. She's based the story of the privileged Milton family on her own place in History's Trap, which was white, northeastern, and moneyed, old moneyed. And so it is that we meet Kitty Milton, married to Ogden, in the year 1935, swanning about New York City on a warm day in May. At the end of this wonderful day, the unthinkable happens when one of the Milton's children meets their untimely death. True to form, this aristocratic family decides that it would be better not to dwell on the incident. Some things are better left unsaid. Of course, the death of a child doesn't go away, and when Kitty is given a chance to save another from the horrors of Nazi Germany, she's conflicted. But the novel is not just about that. There are other characters of different tribes that test and challenge the status quo. Interspersed with the events of the early years, the years when the Miltons acquired their own island, around which much of the story is based, is the perspective of Evie, granddaughter to Ogden and Kitty, and daughter of recently departed Joan, who visits her in her dreams. The current generation of Milton descendants, cousins, are left to decide what to do with the island in its current state, to address what it means to each of them and how they all carry its history through their own memories. But remember, there were always things better left unsaid. Says the author in her afterward, I began this book knowing only that I wanted to write a multi-generational novel whose plot thought backwards through three generations of a family to explore the way in which the past lives inside the present, how we echo our parents' and grandparents' voices without knowing whose they are, and repeat gestures without knowing what we do. I was especially interested in the way generations continue blindly forward by remembering in fragments. And I want to show how we remember, and most of all, how we forget by choosing what we don't tell. With a firm grasp of the power of a place to bind and define, having come from a family who indeed owns an island dating back to the Depression, Blake weaves a fictitious story around similar circumstances to explore a white American family for whom keeping quiet was a virtue and their understanding of that past. What I loved about the story was that it held my interest in terms of the narrative, while at the same time forced me to reckon with some really valuable themes affirmed by the author's explanation only at the end. It's definitely one to include in your book club as it evokes much deep and meaningful discussion. The competition winner will be contacted after the show, so don't go anywhere just yet.
that was the intermezzo for Nana. Um, Cindy, I'm going to have to ask you to help me out with the name here. By Dietrich Wagner, played by guitarist James Grace. Thank you. I wouldn't have been able to do that. <laughs> and so, what's coming up next? Right. So just to recap, we heard from Beverly Rose Muller about Ian McEwan's Machines Like Me, Andrew Brown on William Boyd's Love is Blind, Vanessa Levenstein reviewed Fiona Snicker's Lacuna, Philip Todras spoke to Samantha Smirin, author of Life Interrupted, a bipolar memoir. John Hanks delighted in William Clark and Rob Davies' African Raptors. Beryl Eichenberger explored Michelle Sachs's You Were Made for This, and Perry Lorimer discovered Philip Kerr's Metropolis. I reviewed Sarah Blake's The Guest Book. And that's a wrap for this month's book choice. Before we go, I want to say a warm and grateful farewell to Mataba Taba, who has been the most wonderful part of the FMR team and is going to Johannesburg. I know we'll all miss his gentle, reassuring voice, as well as all the technical things he does to make the show happen. Go well, Mataba Taba, from the Book Choice team. Speaking of which, thanks as always to Rick Everett for the music choice, Mawanda Lobi, and of course, Mataba Taba Radebi. From me, Cindy Moritz, it's happy reading till next month. FMR.